Good to see you folks. Welcome to Emmaus Church community. Welcome to those of you who are joining us from your homes. May this be a fully engaged in hour together. Let's embrace this like um, with some intentionality, with some focus, uh, with uh, an acknowledgement of the opportunity of this moment together, wherever we are, to join with our community in worship um, praying for the grace to be open and honest with ourselves today as we continue to lean into the Word. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'm going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for the next few minutes. Somebody will hand you a Bible uh, if that will be helpful to you. Also, there's, there's um, clipboards with pages for kids, and I'm going to ask kids to draw. I'm going to try to remember to ask kids to draw four pictures today. So if you're at home, maybe get some stuff to draw with, and we will um, hopefully get a lot of cool pictures of cool pictures that you guys drew along uh, the morning. All right, if you're new with us, please share um, your name so that we can get to know you a little bit. If you're here with us and you're new, we'd love to just get to know you. One way to do that is to fill out an information card. Um, there's, there's bags of coffee for new guests. We'd love to give you one on your way out today. Uh, it's a challenging time to foster community, and so we need to just kind of be a little bit more you know, forward, forward with that um, if we're interested in the relational side of the church, which is such a key part. So um, thanks to those of you sitting up there. That's gracious of you. Appreciate that. Uh, we're going to move to two gatherings next week. We'll say more about that in a minute just as a way of planning going forward. Okay, I want to briefly begin by acknowledging, I want to begin by briefly acknowledging the chaos and the, um, some of the images from this, this last week that many of us, I'm sure, saw. There were several images and messages connected to the images. There were a lot of statements being made, and there were a lot of perceptions being received, messages being received. One of the most basic messages in play over this last week had to do with the essential question of what does it look like to win and what does it look like to lose? What does victory look like? What does power look like? And there are a lot of people who are analyzing the images and the messages of this week, and I don't really feel a need to add my voice to that. But I would like to begin with you this morning by inviting us to sit for a minute with this image and to meditate on this together. This is the Agnes Day. This is the Lamb of God. It's an early Christian symbol. It's rooted in the teachings of the Bible. This is a symbol of Christian victory. That's what this is. This is what Christian victory looks like. Victory from a Christian perspective. This is a lamb of God. In case this is totally unfamiliar with you or for you, Jesus is declared to be the lamb of God. So this is a symbol of Christ. It's a symbol of innocence. It's a symbol of purity. Quiet in the face of accusation. Sacrifice. Laying down your life for another. It's a symbol of the forgiveness for sins. It's a symbol of the rescue of the guilty. The salvation of the guilty. It's a symbol of triumph of love. 
the triumph of love. In the last book of the Bible, it's called the Revelation. John is one of Jesus' disciples. He says this, Then I heard every creature, every creature, is what he writes, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And then they cried out. Who's they? Every creature on heaven and earth. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this is victory. This is the triumph that we read about in Scripture. And more than that, this is reality. This is reality. This is the way it is. So I want to invite us to begin this morning by praying this together. And increasingly, um, I am, I'm reaching out to the Lord and asking for grace to engage in a way that is distinctly Christian. Distinctly Christian. So I invite you to pray this prayer with me. This prayer comes along with this image. It's all called the, the, the Lamb of God. Let's pray this. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us peace. Amen. I'm challenged once again this morning to examine my devotion to Jesus and to build in my life structures that build my own capacity to love people, to uh, my capacity to receive the love that God has for me, and then and then to build that capacity to share that love with, with other people. I don't want to be filled with the spirits of this age. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want my response to the things that are constantly changing and happening at levels that are just more and more amazing to me all of the time. And, and I want to respond in a way that is distinctly Christian. I want to work for the restoration of all things, for the healing of the nations, including ours. And, and so this is like the heartbeat behind this message. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at the um, temptations of Christ this morning. The, the, the text will also be on the screen we're going to return to this. this is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Jesus' is 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. This scene is so revealing about Jesus, and it's so instructive about the way Jesus lived, and therefore it helps us to know how we can live. This is the story of his temptations in the desert. There's so much going on here. I think I could preach on this story for a year. Three things really fast. This isn't even what I'm talking about specifically, but let me just let me just warm up with this. This story is historically loaded. It is historic. So from the perspective of the Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel, when they read in Matthew's gospel that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, they would have thought about the people of God being tried in the wilderness for 40 years, right? The people of God were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Then they are freed from slavery. They enter and they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. They mostly fail. Almost nobody who's freed from slavery in Egypt even makes it into the promised land. So there's this epic story in the history of the Jewish people of being in the wilderness. The opportunity is to trust and obey God, and, and they almost completely fail. 
Now Jesus goes into the wilderness for a similar kind of experience, but he succeeds. So in some way, Jesus is actually restoring the failure of the people of God as he goes into the wilderness for his temptation. So this story is just loaded with historical significance. Secondly, the fact that this story is even recorded is entirely fascinating to me. Because of this, how does Luke, who writes about it, and Matthew, who writes about it, how do they even know this happened? Jesus is by himself in the wilderness, right? He's all alone. Jesus doesn't have any disciples yet at this point in his ministry. Nobody's witnessing this. How then do these people know what the devil said to Jesus? And more importantly, how do they know how what the devil said was actually tempting to Jesus? Jesus must have told them. That's fascinating to me. There must be an unwritten story, right, about a campfire or a walk somewhere where Jesus says, yeah, before I met you guys, I was in the wilderness and I went hand to hand with the devil for 40 days. And actually, friends, it was tempting. Let me tell you about it. That's entirely fascinating to me. I mean, I'm just super interested in that. And then a third thing about this story, the story starts with probably the most mind-bending sentence in Scripture, in my opinion. Here's the sentence. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. (laughs) Really? That's incredible, isn't it? So we'll get to that In two minutes, first, let me catch you up in case you weren't here last week. We kicked off the new series called New Year, New Resolve. And what I tried to do last week was to acknowledge together that many of the structures upon which we depend for health and growth, public structures, stuff like going to school, going to church, going to the gym, going out to eat, they've been restricted, almost completely canceled. And therefore... We, and, and they don't seem to be coming back anytime soon. So we, I, I was encouraging you last week and myself not to wait for these structures to be put back in place by somebody else, but to build personal structures, individual habits, rhythms of life ourselves that will support who we are, according to God, who we want to become. Right? Let's not wait. Let's stop reacting to life on our heels and let's embrace who we are in the, in the, according to God and let's begin to build back as we start this new year. Let's begin to build back healthy personal structures that will support the kind of growth that we value as children of God. So that was last week. Today what I want to do is ask you to examine your motives. This is deep. I want to ask us to try to be honest about what is moving us as we rebuild our lives. What is is motivating our decisions as we reestablish rhythms and routines and family traditions and, and healthy habits? Why are we doing what we're doing? Specifically, I want to urge us in this way. I want to urge us not to be motivated by fear and instead to be motivated by trust. Okay? Now, One more quick sidebar, and then I'll jump into this with both feet. But I just want to acknowledge this cultural stereotype because I don't want to be misunderstood as feeding into that. Um, As I talk about being motivated by fear, it's very important for me that you understand that I am not implying that those in our community who are choosing to worship from home are doing so out of fear. 
Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. I'm not going to judge your motive. I have no ability to do that, right? Maybe some of the people who are joining us in worship in person are motivated out of fear. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. That's not my call. I have no ability to judge that. So I want you to understand that as I am talking about being motivated by fear, this is not some cloaked indictment of wearing masks or worshiping from a home. It's not what I'm about. It's not what I'm doing. It's really important to me that you understand that. I'm going deeper than that. I'm attempting to get behind all of the stuff that's out in front and ask you, could you and I, could we be honest about what is actually moving us? Because as we build in structures at the beginning of this year, we could build in structures that are just, they're destructive because they're motivated by the wrong thing. And that's just not what any one of us wants, right? All right, thanks for hearing me there. Um, let's do this. Let's look at this super interesting sentence from Matthew's gospel. I think it messes with our neat and clean theological categories. Jesus was led by the Spirit, not away from the wilderness, into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil. Okay, here's the first picture. If you're a drawer, draw a picture of this. I would love to see how you depict this. What does it look like for Jesus to be led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? I want to look at this sentence through the lens of fear and trust, okay? There's an author that I've been exposed to recently. His name is Patrick Sweeney. He's an author, speaker, entrepreneur, cancer survivor, and he writes a book called Fear is Fuel. He writes this, there are only two ways to make a decision, out of fear or out of opportunity. When you make a decision out of fear, it almost always leads to regret. When you make a decision based on opportunity, it will always lead to learning something and getting closer to your goal. Does anybody feel like 2020 was a year where you were constantly having to make decisions? I felt like I had to make more decisions in 2020 than I make in almost any other year. And as I look back over the year, I realized that a constant temptation was to make decisions out of fear, to be motivated by fear as I'm making decisions. Fear, it turns out, is a really powerful motivator. Uh, but one of the things I really appreciate about this quote is the observation, and I resonate with this, that when you make a decision out of fear, you almost always feel regret. I don't like feeling fear. I don't like that feeling. But I don't like regret even more. I hate regret. I just despise it. It eats me up like almost nothing else. So I almost always feel regretful when I look back on a decision and I go, oh, man, I was operating out of fear. I almost always feel regretful about an interaction with somebody when I, when I realize with clarity later, oh, I responded to them in fear. I reacted because I was afraid. So this author, Patrick Sweeney, he thinks that we make decisions out of fear or out of opportunity. Sounds like an entrepreneur, doesn't he? I, when I first read that word opportunity, I didn't like it. It doesn't strike me as a biblical word necessarily, um, but it has started to grow on me as I've spent some time with it. Sweeney says, when you make a decision based on opportunity, it will always lead to learning something and getting closer to your goal. So I tried that on over the last couple of weeks, and I thought about it in my own life, specifically in the context of the challenge of my goal to draw closer to God 
to know Jesus better. And this is what I'm thinking. What if some of the things that make me feel fear could be viewed instead as opportunities for me to learn something or to get closer to my goal? In other words, if, what if those times when I feel fear and I'm tempted to sort of shrink back, I could recategorize in my mind and instead I could embrace them as an opportunity specifically to trust God more, to step closer into my relationship with my Father, to trust what God the Father says about me. What if that's a way we could go with that? What if we applied that idea to this sentence at the beginning of Matthew's gospel? or chapter 4 of it, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When I read that sentence, honestly, my soul protests. I don't like that. What would this, why would the Spirit of God lead the Son of God into the wild to be tempted by the enemy of God? Well, maybe for the opportunity to trust the Father. Maybe. Maybe to put hands and feet experience to this value of trust. Maybe to learn really practically and in the face of the most intense kinds of temptation. This is not easy stuff. How to trust God. Most of us have experienced all kinds of challenges and pain and brokenness and temptation in the last year. I think God has allowed many of you over the last year to walk through some really dark valleys. Maybe some of those experiences happened just because the world is a broken place. I'm not going to try to get into the why so much. But maybe some of that stuff happened because the world's just broken. Maybe some of those hard things were allowed to be a part of your life. Maybe even the Spirit led you into some of those hard things to teach you how to trust God more. Maybe they were an opportunity to trust the Father. Trust the Father about what specifically? Well, three things. Ultimately, about who you are, your identity. Secondly, about the fact that you are loved by God. And third, something about your purpose. So I have a comment about each of those things as we go forward. I think this is an opportunity, potentially. In other words, hard times, challenges that we face, can be embraced as opportunities to trust God about who we are, the fact that we are loved, and something about the purpose of our life. Let's look quickly at the three temptations of Christ and consider what it would look like to be motivated by fear and alternatively what it would look like to be motivated by trust. First temptation. Here's another opportunity to draw a picture, kids. Draw a picture of this first temptation. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, that means Jesus didn't eat. He was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So here's the first temptation. The devil goes right at the core issue, which is Jesus' identity. The father has just said, this is my son. The devil begins by questioning that. And the devil is going to use a very real and legitimate need in the process, which is hunger. The devil tempts Jesus to access the power of God to prove that he is God's son. Here's Jesus' response, and it's epic. Jesus answered, it is written, 
Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to react in fear to physical discomfort. And even more important than that, Jesus is saying, what my father says about me sustains me. Okay. What my father says about me That's what sustains me. I trust my Father. Trust is motivating Jesus right now. Trust is motivating him, not fear. He's being moved by trust. Okay, what about us? This is what it can typically look like for us when we are motivated by fear. We try to use our abilities. We try to access our connections. We try to leverage our resources all to meet our felt needs. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, in and of itself, that's not necessarily a problem, but it actually becomes a problem because your felt needs are about something deeper than your felt needs. We try to meet our felt needs, in other words, as a way of proving our value, as a way of proving who we are. I'm going to buy this to show everyone that I am okay. okay. I'm, I'm going I'm to eat this to, to demonstrate that I am cool. I'm going to do this to, to show me and myself and everybody else that I am accepted. I do belong. I am worth it. I'm going to wear these clothes to show everyone I'm worth it. It's just, a, it's just a practical thing, but it's about something much deeper than that. It's about our identity. Typical fear responses, you've heard a couple of them a lot. Fight. Flight, a third one is freeze. You just do nothing because you're afraid. This is helpful because this helps me understand when I am motivating or being motivated by fear. What does it look like? Well, maybe I'm fighting. Maybe I'm flighting. Maybe I'm freezing. There's at least two more. There's feeding. Anybody stress eat? Okay. Yeah. And and, and then there's a fifth one, fantasizing. Getting lost in pretend land, whether it's pornography or hours of video games or binge watching Netflix. Any of that been going on in the last year or so, right? Fantasizing, just getting out of this reality into a different reality. My friend Dave said to me recently, people don't drink their face off and sleep with strangers because they're mentally healthy and (laughs) well-adjusted. They do that because they're afraid, okay? At the core, it's fear. So these are typical fear responses, Fighting, running, or taking flight, freezing, doing nothing, apathy, right? feeding or escaping into fantasy, whether it's promiscuity or endless you know, video games or whatever. And they, all those things, when we act out of all those things, it almost always leads to regret. On the other hand, what does it look like to be motivated by trust? Well, when we're motivated by trust in God, what we're doing is we find ourselves surrendering our abilities to God. It doesn't mean sitting on the couch and doing nothing. It just means we're surrendering our resources, our abilities, our time. We're saying, God, you're in charge of these. They're at your disposal. That's what surrender means. And I'm looking to God as the giver and the sustainer of my life. So then I say, with Jesus, what my Father says about me is what sustains me. That's what it means to trust, to be motivated by trust. What he says about me is true. That's what's going to hold me up and sustain me. I trust my Father. All right, here's the second temptation of Christ. Here's another opportunity to draw a picture. This one's pretty amazing. The devil took Jesus to the holy city. 
That's a big deal. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple. It's like the center of the center of Jewish thought. And then he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, Satan is addressing Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God, now it's not a private thing. Now it's a public thing. But this time, Satan questions whether or not God really loves his Son. That's the question on the table. And he spins this sick scenario, and he issues a challenge to Jesus, which is to jump. And the game is... If God really does love his son, Jesus, he will save him. He will catch him. And the devil doesn't play fair, so he quotes the word of God to the word of God, which is so bold and so arrogant, right? And Jesus' response is like off of his highlight reel. This is one of the greatest responses. Jesus responds saying, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test which is just explosive. I mean, it's just like slam the door. In other words, Jesus is saying, I will not be moved by fear. I will not question the love that my Father has for me. I will be moved by trust. He says he loves me. I will trust that he loves me. I don't need to test whether or not he loves me. Okay, what about us? Will we be motivated by fear and demand dramatic proofs of God's love? This can be really easy when we're hurting. It's easy to feel forgotten. It's easy to feel abandoned. It's easy when this is where we're feeling. It's easy to question God's love and start to think in terms of proofs. This is how it sounds. If you love me, God, you'll heal me. That's how it sounds. If you love me, God, you'll provide for me. If you love me, God, you'll rescue me. And then sometimes when, that's, when what we want doesn't come, we start questioning, does he really even love me? So these kind of prayers are understandable, but they are, si- friends, they're signs that fear is creeping in. That's why we want to be careful about these kinds of prayers. They are indicators They are alarms that fear is creeping in. You are being moved by fear. Instead, could we embrace the challenge, the hard time, the difficult situation as an opportunity to trust God? To believe that even in the absence of the assurance of God's love, we are loved by God because God said he loves us. Super challenging to do, right? But the good news is, in my view, Christian history is full of saints who testify to having gone long periods of time without any assurance of the love or the presence of God in their life. Maybe you haven't heard that before. One of the most famous examples is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She has this powerful relationship with God as a little girl. She has this amazingly visceral calling to go to Calcutta. And then she arrives And it's like the lights turn off and they never come back on, according to her biography. She never again senses the presence of God and the assurance of his love. Isn't that astounding? It's astounding to me. 
She's tempted to be motivated by fear. He's abandoned me. This is all a joke. This doesn't matter. She chooses to be motivated by trust. And she trusts that she's loved by God. Why? Because he said that she is. Because he said that. She ministers for something like 45 years from the fuel that she receives from that initial calling to go to Calcutta. It's, just, it's astounding. It's astounding to me. It's instructive. Finally, here's a third temptation in Matthew's account. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, draw a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will fall down and worship me. Okay. Now Satan is scrapping the previous strategy completely. It didn't work. He resorts to basically offering Jesus power. It's essentially how much is it going to cost me, Jesus? What is it going to take? What's your number? How much do I need to pay you in order to get what I want? He's going to give Jesus whatever Jesus says, as long as Jesus will worship him. And that may sound ridiculous and desperate, but that's what shortcuts are. Shortcuts, when it comes to like character and morality, they're always ridiculous and, and desperate. When we're tempted to take a shortcut. And Jesus just slams the door on Satan here. He says, away from me, Satan. Actually, the verb is Jesus declared. So he probably yells it into the night or wherever this is happening. Away from me, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus will not be bullied. He will not be bought. He will not look for loopholes or shortcuts. He will trust in the plan of the Father. This has to do not with his identity or with God's affection for him. This has to do with Jesus' purpose. He's going to be motivated by trust when it comes to his purpose. What about us? Will we be motivated by fear? Will we seek power and control by any means possible? Reminds me of like the Star Wars movies, like the one where Luke Skywalker, I think it's the third original, where he's fighting Darth Vader, and they're battling with lightsabers, and it's getting pretty bad for Luke, but you kind of know that Darth Vader's not going to be able to beat him, and I think Darth Vader knows he's not going to be able to beat him too, and so now he changes his strategy, and he reaches out, and he offers him a deal, and he says, join forces with me, and together we will rule the galaxy. You know that kind of idea? It's like you can't beat him, so he's offering a deal to join him. It's fear that motivates us to compromise our character. It's fear that motivates us to take the shortcut, to use any means to justify the end. One person shared with me that they convinced themselves to continue to gamble at Thunder Valley, and they convinced themselves it was okay because, after all, they were going to tithe to the church, right? Sounds ridiculous and desperate, but this is what it starts, this is what you do when you're motivated by fear, by that desperate, oh my gosh, I have to make this work, right? From the outside, it sounds ridiculous, but when we're motivated by fear, we'll justify almost anything. But not when our motivation is trust in God, not when we're motivated to worship him and to serve him only. That's what trust says. Trust says no compromise, no deals. All right, let's look again at this image, the Agnes Day, the Lamb of God. Remember, this is an image of Jesus. And essentially what I've just said this morning is this, friends. Jesus trusts 
who the Father says he is. Jesus trusts he's loved because God says he's loved. And Jesus trusts that God's way is the only way. Jesus is not motivated out of fear, but out of trust when it comes to his identity, when it comes to the affection of God, and when it comes to his purpose. All right, let me just end with this story. This is the story of the death of St. Cyprian, who's the bishop of Carthage. He was an influential Christian leader, born in Africa, killed in Rome in 258 A.D. And the reason the date is important is this, friends. 258 A.D. is two whole generations before Rome sort of co-ops Christianity and makes it legal, and the state gets all integrated with the church. This is before any of that mess happens. This is a very persecuted time in the church history, a very pure time of Christianity. There's no gain socially. Okay, this is when this is happening. This man's name is Cyprian, and here's how the story goes. He's, he's arrested, and he's called before this Roman council. The Roman official, his name is Galerius Maximus, which sounds like a shopping center down the road to me. Galerius Maximus, he says, you, Thassius Cyprian, have you regarded yourself as the father to these irreligious men? They're Christians, but from the Roman perspective, they're irreligious because they're not worshiping the Roman gods. You follow me? Okay. Cyprian replies, so the question is, have you regarded yourself as the father to these irreligious men? Cyprian replies, I have. Maximus declares, the venerable emperors bid you offer sacrifice. I shall not, Cyprian declares. Reflect on your decision is Maximus' response. And to this, Cyprian answers, do what you must. In so just a cause, no reflection is needed. I just love this. I love this. And so then the Roman council discusses, what are they going to do with this guy? He will not bend, right? And then they, they list all these ways that Cyprian's devotion to Jesus has offended the Roman gods, and they come out with this um, judgment. Thassius Cyprian is to be executed by beheading. And Cyprian's response is recorded to be, thanks be to God. And then Cyprian and several of his students offer themselves before the executioner, and they are martyred. So I read this on September 14th, and I was so challenged, specifically by this part of the dialogue. Reflect on your decision. No reflection is needed. I love that. In other words, are you sure, are you sure you want to trust God? Absolutely. Absolutely sure. Yeah. In the face of fear, Cyprian chooses trust. He uses fear as an opportunity to trust. This is very helpful to me. And this is an example, let this be known, this is an example of well-developed faith, well-developed. This is a mature faith. Cyprian's convictions have been tested many times. He's faced many trials, and he's had many opportunities to practice trusting God. This is not elementary. This is, this is an example for us. 
But now he's settled. And that's the contentment and the peace that I'm longing for. He's settled. He knows God sustains him. He knows God loves him. And he will not worship or serve anyone else because he knows his purpose is to worship and serve God and God alone. He may feel fear, but he's not being moved by it. You hear me, friends? As we enter into this new year, you're going to feel fear. May we not be moved by fear. May Instead, may we be motivated by trust, by trust in God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So first, Lord, I ask for clarity. We need to be able to distinguish between the two right where it matters, like in our own lives. So I pray for clarity, Lord. Help us to see and to recognize. Give us the courage to be honest with ourselves when, oh, man, I'm actually doing this out of fear. And that will lead to regret. And it's not necessary. Instead, give me the grace to trust you. I need supernatural power to trust you and to live out of trust. And I just pray, Lord, for the church in the midst of this world at this time that we could demonstrate an alternative to the currency of this culture, which is fear. Help us to show, to live, and to demonstrate uh, a different way, a way that is rooted in who you are, Jesus, as the Lamb of God. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.